Support for Intended is provided by Male Contraceptive Initiative, a 501c3 nonprofit that advances the research and development of new methods of male contraception. We promote male contraception with scientific granting, advocacy, and outreach in order to bring about an inclusive landscape of contraception to people around the world. More information is available at malecontraceptive.org, where you can find our grants, our frequently asked questions, and understand what the future of contraception could be. That's malecontraceptive.org. We're at the University of California in Berkeley, and we're visiting the lab of Dr. Polina Lishko, who works in sperm motility. Will Skinner is a graduate student in the lab. So I'll, it's fine. I'll show you. So, so basically, we got this high-speed camera attached. Basically, in real life, sperm have to be able to move in very specific ways to get them all the way to the egg, and this movement. That's what we call motility. We are swimming. Really going for it. Yep. Technique? Yeah. You really should. Mm -hmm. Every time. And the way they study motility, they study it in live human sperm. Sperm that's donated by volunteers. Um, and so we have these donors and they come in, they're anonymized, and they drop samples for us like in the, in the middle envelopes over there. And then... They take these donated samples and they isolate the sperm out of them. And then they find out how motility works, like really works how you can possibly turn it up to 11 or slow it all the way down or turn it off entirely. And if you turn off motility entirely, you've stopped sperm from getting to the egg. And that's one way to make a male birth control. This is an academic lab. It's a normal day with meetings and lunch and math on scratch paper, but there's something about the atmosphere. It's buzzy. Graduate students are always popping their heads into a room to mention something new. They're walking around with purpose and intention. And you get the sense that they really enjoy the science of it all. <laughs> it's easy to see why. Polina, the professor, she's super engaging. She's always answering a question or making a quick observation. And labs like this are all over the place. Lots of people come together, they bounce ideas around, and then they pull apart to go work on them, knowing that there's always something new around the corner. And enjoying science is kind of the point of an academic lab. You're supposed to go out there and explore what you want and also at the same time explore where the grant funding leads you. It's the kind of life where when you answer one question, you get 10 more in return and they answer one of those and you get 10 more after that and soon you've got more things to do than time to do it. And it means you have to prioritize. A lot of times you need to cut things loose and focus on what you can get funding to work on. You may think a lot of those questions are worth answering and they're exciting and they're interesting, but if someone can't pay you to do it, it has to go on the back burner. Grant funding, it keeps labs going. It pays for research like what Will's doing and generally it keeps people employed. But research on male contraception has pretty much always been underfunded. In male reproduction, things have been focused on improving in vitro fertilization, which is noble. It helps people who are having trouble conceiving, but it doesn't make new birth control options. And so a large group of academic researchers have always had these projects on the back burner. The male birth control questions haven't been answered because the money isn't there. Until recently. It seems there's been a renewed interest in male contraception. Labs are finding funds from the government and nonprofits that allow them to focus on that neat way they can maybe turn off sperm motility and, and try to bring it back again. Or they can drain the energy so sperm can't swim in the first place. 
ways that are focused on making birth control options. And now there are tons of little projects getting moved forward, doing science with the ultimate objective of making a male birth control, eventually. These projects are usually the very beginning of that infinitely growing set of questions, but they're working on it. People like Will who are trying to answer a question that leads to another question that hopefully leads to a male contraceptive. Generally, grant funding comes in different forms. Most of the time, a professor will write a proposal. It's got a budget, a timeline, and a bunch of research objectives, and it's all focused on the basic science of male reproduction, learning more about the ways the male body works. The money goes towards the research, and a lot of time, it supports the people that are actually doing the work. And usually those people are graduate students and postdoctoral researchers. Academia is built on these folks. Graduate students are working on their master's or their PhD, and they're early in their career. They're still figuring out what kind of research path they like and where they want to go, but postdoctoral researchers have already finished grad school. They've got a PhD, and they're focused on an area of study for the long term, getting trained and ready for a career in the field. Grad students and postdocs are the lifeblood. They do the bench science that actually answers the questions. And sometimes they get paid with a big research grant, but often they'll find their own support in the form of a fellowship. In the Lishka lab, both Will and a lab mate have gotten fellowships to focus on projects that could pave the way for a new contraceptive for men. Will's is from the National Science Foundation, and then his lab mate, Lilia, has one from us at MCI. Those fellowships allow them to support male contraception by actually doing the work, as well as building a career of their own. Their projects are early stage, learning more about sperm motility in hopes of turning it off and making a male birth control. Will one of their projects ultimately be the one where all the questions get answered in all the right ways and we end up making a birth control option for men? Who knows? This is the beginning. Anything could happen. This early stage, the academic exploration, that's the wide part of the funnel. Lots of projects go in just asking, can this be a good contraceptive for men? And as time goes on, the funnel narrows. Projects drop out for one reason or another, and we learn what might work and what might not. Things move in and things move out, all with the hope of finding the one combination of person and project that can go all the way to the finish line. As for the people behind the projects, like Will and Lilia, they may stay in the funnel and take their project with them. But as the funnel narrows, they may move on. They may stay in academia, they may move to another sector, they may quit science. We don't really know. And today we've got some stories that illustrate that human pipeline, how people move along with the research projects. We'll talk to a postdoc, someone who was part of that foundation of academia, and now he's got a career at a company working on male contraception. We'll also talk with a guy who started his own company, and he's trying to test his on-demand male birth control in men for the first time. And then we'll talk with someone who's doing some of that testing, giving real men real contraception today. All the people trying to get male contraceptives onto the market one step at a time. As for Will, the graduate student, he's gonna continue teasing at the thread of sperm motility. He might work towards his doctorate, and after that he might become a postdoc, and he might go into industry or something else. But today we're working in the lab. We're doing an assay that'll answer something. Just one little question of many. And that allows you to rupture the membrane that's right inside the pipette. And then whatever solutions, like that. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. From Male Contraceptive Initiative, this is Intended. I'm Logan Nichols. And I'm Kevin Shane. Intended is brought to you in part by YTH, an initiative of ETR. 
YTH is a nonprofit that's dedicated to improving the health of young people using technology. One of YTH's Youth Advisor Board members, Ivan, knows the importance of acting locally. I got involved in the mental health and sexual health field, um, and I was really interested in just seeing the ways that young people are affected all around the globe um, on these issues of male contraceptives and, and really being healthy and staying healthy. Learn more about YTH and how they're engaging the voices and power of youth to improve lives at YTH.org. Again, that's YTH.org. Okay, this is Intended, the podcast where we talk about the scientific community and how they've intended to get a male birth control option made for the last 50-odd years. I'm Logan. So that lab we were in, the Lishka lab, most of the people there are graduate students and postdoc researchers, people in that academic cycle, growing, learning, working together, and trying to build a career. And graduate students are working towards a degree, usually a PhD or a master's, but there's a defined exit point there, graduation. The thing with postdocs is they've already graduated. They're postdoctoral. One of these researchers isn't working towards quite the same finish line. They're more doing an extra stint of training. One that happens after they finish their PhD, and it doesn't really have a defined endpoint. And in that training stint, a postdoc is supposed to get the skills and experience that allow them to run a lab of their own, or to go into industry, or figure out what comes next and get themselves specialized for it. These training stints can last a while, lots of times more than a few years. And one postdoc, he took his training stint to pursue something that he thought was cool, something that didn't have a lot of money behind it, but it had questions that he thought needed to be answered. MCI's executive director, Heather Vidat, has a story from one researcher who kept following the evidence and how a little support can go a long way in shaping a career. The research didn't really start out intending to go down this path, but I've just followed the biology and this is where it's led. That's Aaron, and he's in an academic lab working on male contraception, but his path to get there wasn't preordained. Uh, so my name is Aaron Crapster. I am uh, a postdoc in uh, the, the Chen lab, James Chen, here at Stanford University. Um, I am in a lab that does not traditionally study male reproductive biology or reproductive biology in general. So I was following this story and it took me here, but the lab didn't have any resources for me to do that. Aaron is one of MCI's fellows who's been doing that training stint that happens after getting your PhD called a postdoc. He's been doing that for seven years now. That's a long time to be a trainee and a long time to be in the purgatory of finding your next step. And that story that Aaron has been following is HIPK4, or HIPK4, which is a gene essential for sperm function. It started with him studying something unrelated, basic cell biology, some developmental signaling transduction pathways, a little biochemistry. Um, but it turns out that my project kept leading me into male reproductive biology um, based on the proteins that I was studying and their expression in normal mammalian physiology. And so here we are. I'm studying um, this protein kinase called HIPK4. It is primarily uh, expressed in the male germline. So those are the cells that develop in the testis uh, in mammals from the spermatogonial stem cells to matured spermatozoa. And HIPK4 is part of how these cells create fully functional sperm over and over again. HIPK4 plays a very subtle yet essential function during that process. And it, and it works kind of late in the game. 
HIPK4 is an acronym standing for homeodomain interacting protein kinase. And when it comes down to it, this enzyme does one specific job. It helps sperm develop. So these cells are undergoing dozens of transformations throughout their journey to becoming matured sperm. When HIPK4 is working correctly, sperm cells develop normally and are functional. But when it doesn't do its one job, sperm have all sorts of defects that make them unable to function. HIPK4 is part of a larger family with other proteins like it that have been well studied. And what's interesting is it turns out to be the type of protein that um, folks in the biopharma world have been studying for many years and they know how to inhibit very well. That makes HIPK4 attractive when trying to design new male contraceptive drugs. Like the entirety of academia, Aaron struggles with trying to get funding for his projects. And in a niche field like male contraception, it's even harder. And funding for young researchers is everything. It allows them to complete their experiments so that they can get the data they need to publish in scientific journals so that they can advance knowledge and get the reputation of being a great researcher. This in turn allows them to get jobs where they can do more experiments and get more data, but on a more permanent basis. It's hard in general to find funding for male contraception projects. Male contraceptives won't cure someone of a disease. They aren't blockbuster cancer therapies. You're treating a healthy population for a long period of time with a drug that they're choosing to use. There are a lot of inherent risks, and the pathway for male contraception gets muddy quickly, especially compared to other therapeutic areas. But Aaron likes a good challenge and thinks male contraceptives are an important cause to work towards. I think it's actually very rare that um, you stumble upon a project that you can also be passionate, legitimately passionate about its implications beyond uh, the publication that you're working on. And so I happened to find that. And so being able to chase that um, was a unique thing for me. Aaron is smart, passionate, and inquisitive, all of the things you want a scientist to be. For him, the drive comes in equal parts from the pursuit of knowledge, as well as hoping to make a difference in the world. He wants to see his work move out of the lab and into the clinic where it can affect real people. But underfunded fields like male contraception need a boost, and trainees like Aaron need support to not only learn more about the field, but to build their own career path. For some trainees, this means staying in academia and continuing to answer the fundamental questions surrounding male fertility. For others, it can mean moving into industry and trying to get a product to market. Either way, trainees need support to learn and grow. There's not a lot of support for it funding-wise. Uh, it's because it is a challenge. Um, it's a challenge looking ahead towards how you design the clinical trials and how you do it safely. And the efficacy has to be there. The safety has to be there. The reversibility has to be there. And so there is a, it's all achievable. It's just going to take a while. And... Um, there's been a lack of funding in it for a while. So it, having these little training grants are critical for allowing people to build their careers in this space so then they can take it to the independent step, which is, which is the next step for me. And so without the funding of uh, the fellowship that I've gotten, this training grant, um, I probably would have had to cut my time short or we would not be able to look forward for the next ex sets of experiments and I would have had to figure out how to wrap up what I was doing and just move on. So I don't know if I've actually told you guys how critical that this fellowship actually is for, for, my, uh, for being able to push the project forward. Um, 
but it really, really was. And, and now it's led to uh, the next phase of my career as well. So um, it was just an amazing sort of serendipitous um, opportunity. Aaron's starting a new job soon. He's moving out of academia to work with a startup developing HIPK4 as a male contraceptive. And he's getting to pursue his passion in a way that makes sense for him. That's good for the field, too, because now there's one more project in the pipeline being developed by someone who knows the target better than anyone else on the planet. Male Contraceptive Initiative is funding people like Aaron because we want to stimulate progress. And that progress is good for the men and women who have been waiting for more contraceptive options to arrive. This support can really make the difference for a single researcher, and that single researcher can take their project to the next stage. By the public, I mean Congress and the NIH and their budgets. That largely dictates the funding that's available for different things in the research community. Um, So I think it is really important that there's a public outcry for the need for contraceptions. I think there's a need for better female contraception. I think there's a need for better male contraception or any male contraception that's pharmacologic in nature. But all aspects need to be explored. I don't think it needs, I also don't think it needs to be a a female versus a male issue. I think this is uh, a family issue, a couple's issue, and having more options is always better. Because female birth control is not, is not perfect, but it does exist and it's changed the world. And uh, um, I think that we just need to catch up on other options. I think we've found time and time again in the um, real progress in public health comes when there's a need for it and when people recognize that and not demand, but they um, are vocal about it. And they say, yes, we we recognize that we need this and uh, let's go after it. Coming up, we're going to introduce you to someone who made the leap from academia to industry a while ago. Someone who's been in the business of trying to make the next male contraceptive and how that world differs from their world of academic exploration. Stay tuned. You're listening to Intended. Support for Intended is provided by Male Contraceptive Initiative, a 501c3 nonprofit that advances the research and development of new methods of male birth control. MCI's fellowship program sponsors young researchers who are working in the world of male contraception. Melanie Balbach is an MCI fellow, and she knows how important it is to give opportunities to young researchers. I guess you can't support it enough, I would say, because the more we show that we get funding on our own, on an early career stage, the better our chances are on the job market at the end of the day. For more information on MCI and how we're supporting the future of male contraception, head over to malecontraceptive.org. Again, that's malecontraceptive.org. So the world of science for profit pretty much always has its roots in academia. A professor has a crazy idea or finds the right answer to the right question, and someone finds a way to apply that basic understanding in order to make a product. But once we start talking pharma, profits, products, and business, research has to get focused and fast. Academic research is stereotyped as pursuing the eternal unknown and always asking why. Some academics argue with this, but it's more true than not. And it's okay. It's just that the goals of academia are to find out how the world around us works. That isn't the case with someone trying to make a product. 
In that case, researchers have to be very direct and can't get off track. Because, while in academia, money is usually the limiting factor, in pharmaceutical companies, it's more often time. The longer you wait, the longer you spin your wheels, the more opportunity there is for someone to get there first, or for the market to change, or for investors to dry up. Getting a drug to market means hearing what other people's questions are and answering those questions. Those questions come from regulatory agencies and investors alike, and they're all about safety, effectiveness, and the ability to turn a profit in the end. Logan Nichols brings us the story of a man who's lived on the academic and private side of the equation and is now trying to get his company to the next stage. And this is what we need. And so, uh, and so Jeff and I and Catherine are basically the management structure. And then Zahid is... Mike Rand is the CEO of a pharmaceutical company trying to make an on-demand male contraceptive pill. Although sometimes you wouldn't director, guess it. Director of the board of directors at that. <laughs> Chief executive of the uh, board of directors. Or No, that's not what you say. It's um, chief executive officer. No, that, that's not right. That's CEO. I'm the CEO. No, no, he, he, he's... he's uh, Mike isn't a business uh, guy by training board, or by virtue. Some might say he's made a pretty anyway, significant life change. Uh, uh, so See, Mike used to be a professor at the University of North Carolina. He left in 2014 to start his own company and take all the academic research he had done to the next stage. This isn't rare, but it's not common either. Usually academics hand things off to someone who already has a skill set in business when they want to start turning research into products. But Mike jumped in with both feet, and he called his company Epin Pharma, E-P-P-I-N. And Epin's sole mission is to make the first male contraceptive pill. Their product is one that's non-hormonal, reversible, and this part is cool, on demand. Like you take a pill just before sex, and you're covered. Mike has been in this field a long time, and he loves the science. Well, it all comes from the science. I mean, the science of, you know, I've been working on sperm since I was, was, was a PhD candidate, you know, at Woods Hole, working on, uh, on, on, on motility and fertilization and so forth. So I've, it's always been about, about the science, and the science is very interesting, and this is where it leads. Mike's got that typical academic mentality. Explore, understand, observe, and report. And to him, starting Epin is just the next step in a logical series of events. He's been working on this project for decades now, and he wants to see where it can go. Back in the 90s, when Mike was at UNC, he discovered a protein that he called Epin. Yes, Epin is both the name of the protein as well as Mike's company. And that protein, Epin, it has a very specific job. It helps to generate mature sperm, and it acts in the epididymis, a long coiled tube that's attached to the back of the testes. Okay, and so uh, that's why we called it EPIN for epididymal protease inhibitor. That's where the name came from. And, uh, and then we started working on it. When Mike was studying EPIN in the lab, he found that EPIN has to bind to a partner protein. And if it doesn't, there's temporary infertility. He found some drugs that prevented EPIN from doing its job well. And over time, they iterated and they changed molecules around. And they ended up with hundreds of chemical compounds, some good, some bad. And we had a number of these synthesized and made and tested. And so it was a trial and error uh, system that went on for, I don't know, five, six years, maybe? How long? <laughs> Too long, Catherine would say. <laughs> Among those hundreds of compounds was one named EP055. Before drugs get to market and have fancy names like Lipitor or Prozac, they're often just named with something that says where it comes from and which number it is. In this case, EP stands for Epin, 
and 055 is the 55th compound they came up with. And we had hundreds of series, uh, oh, I don't know, hundreds of compounds before we ever got to EP. And EP started when we formed a company, okay? And so now 55 is the 55th compound. We have some 70 now. So stay with me here for a second. EP055 is the thing that Mike is trying to make into a male contraceptive, make into a new drug. And it works because it binds to epin and prevents interaction with epin's binding partner. These proteins normally come together in this biological interaction, and it results in the intended outcome, modal sperm or sperm that can swim. But here, EPO55, the molecule, it acts like a ruler at a middle school dance, and it puts some physical separation between those two proteins so that they don't interact in the way they normally do. And when this happens, sperm and the ejaculate of men don't become motile. That means that men can take the drug and they should be infertile until the drug is gone. So we designed a compound that would fit into this space. So now that Mike has this compound, he's trying to do all the tests to prove that it's safe enough to try in humans. And that's a lot of work. They've done tests in monkeys, and right now they're working on the rest of the package they need to file with the Food and Drug Administration. The application they're working on is an investigational new drug, or IND. It's a big, complex package that proves to the most rigorous of authorities that your chemicals should be safe to try in people for the first time ever. See, clinical trials are generally split into phases. And the first phase is phase one, where human volunteers act as the first recipients of a drug to prove its safety. And getting to an IND allows you to do phase one. It's a long but relatively straightforward pathway. You have to prove safety in a couple of different ways, and there isn't time or money to explore and do detours and look at interesting things. At, at this point, the science now is irrelevant. What is relevant is that we get this the, the drug tested for toxicity, for safety, and, and, and validate our methods. That might seem counter to Mike's academic origins, but there's one thing that's exactly the same as academia, and that's doing the work that you need to costs money. And so getting the money and finding uh, 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 you know, uh, the money to do everything that's necessary is the biggest challenge. Academics need funding to answer questions and explore and understand the biology. Epin, the company, they have to be more focused. To file that investigational new drug package, Mike needs to show convincing data for two things, which are way more complicated than they sound. Is EPO55 safe? And does it work? And funding is hard for a guy in Mike's position. And of course, everybody says, oh, you're too early. You know, come back when you're in phase one or come back when you, you know. So it's always, oh yes, we love your, what you're doing, but uh, you're too early, you know? And so that's, that's always the challenge, is to, to find funding to do what you need to do. It's a bit of a catch-22. Mike needs money to do the tests to get to phase one, where he puts EPO55 in people for the first time. And that proves that it has a really good shot at becoming a drug. But investors will say, nah, get through phase one first. Then we're interested in investing. Even though phase one can cost millions of dollars. This place Mike is in is called the Valley of Death in drug development. And it's where a lot of potential drugs go to die. They've been promising enough to get this far, but there's a lot of risk in giving it the massive funding it needs to get over the hump. Drugs die in the valley of death all the time. It's risky at this stage, and investors treat it that way. But despite the ominous sounding name, Mike feels good about where he is. And he's the type of guy that likes to learn new things, which makes sense. Quite frankly, the, the changeover from an academic to uh, having a company and running a company has been exciting. And, uh, and, and so uh, it's been really a, 
you know, uh, a, a, high, a steep learning curve for me because I had no, didn't know really much about anything in terms of business. And, uh, and it's been fun. I asked Mike if he felt that he was a man in both worlds, if he still had one foot in the university life. Uh, no, I, I, I've uh, uh, changed my shoes. Uh, I don't have any feet in academia anymore. When I, for some uh, academics, a problem isn't solved until it's 100% solved. A problem in a world where answering one question raises 10 more. Mike is different. He loves the science, but he sees things as a linear pathway now, not this swirling vortex of possibilities. You study a project, you understand enough about it to move to the next stage. And that next stage for Epin is to start working with the FDA. Epin is following a logical chain of events that are laid out in a long straight line, and diverging from that path means time and money, which are both in short supply. Mike doesn't miss working in the lab. He sometimes misses taking a flyer and exploring a new path that wasn't there before, but now he's got his eye on the prize. He's focused. Measuring how the sperm are responding to these chemicals uh, or these compounds that we're, we're, we're having. So that's exciting. Uh, but it, it, it has to take a, a second, you know, a backseat to the, getting the business working. Because if the business doesn't work, we're done. So Mike's goal is to get into the clinic to get Epin, the company, to have enough momentum, capital, and scientific success to get EPO55, the drug, into the clinic. And to do that, he's got to convince investors to give him money so he can convince the FDA that Epin is ready for human studies. Getting into human trials is the biggest transition in the life of drug development, and it's hard to get to that milestone. The studies, scientific reviews, the questions from regulators, and so on, they're all massive challenges. But once you get into people, it doesn't mean that you're done. Clinical trials are also long and difficult. They also face scientific review and regulation and lots of money. And working in people is hard because they're not as predictable as preclinical laboratory studies. There's just too many variables in what makes a person a person. Kevin Shane recently talked with someone who's part of male contraceptive clinical trials, three of them to be exact, where hormonal products of different flavors are being tested on men right now. And this investigator, She's acutely aware of the differences between the lab bench and the clinic. Uh, well, people are not mice and people are not a test tube. And so one of the hurdles is that um, is sort of the obvious one that every person's different. And so there's so much more heterogeneity amongst men than there are when we're in that preclinical stage. I'm talking with Stephanie Page, who knows a few things about working in that clinical space. Sure. I'm Stephanie Page. I'm a professor of medicine at the University of Washington School of Medicine. I've been working in the field of male hormonal contraceptive development for about 15 years and currently do a number of collaborative studies with our partners at LA Biomed and NICHD and the Population Council with a focus on attempting to develop essentially a menu of products that are hormonally based that men could use for a reversible and safe contraception. And that menu of products she's talking about? They're currently the only male contraceptives in clinical trials where real live men are using them to see how they work and to go through the rigorous approval process for the Food and Drug Administration. There are a few different trials testing different types of methods, but they all essentially work the same way. So hormonal contraception in men works very similarly to hormonal contraception in women. And what I mean by that is that we give men naturally occurring hormones, uh, either by a pill or a gel or an injection. 
And by providing men those hormones, it actually prevents the signals from the brain, in this case, to the testicle, which are required for sperm development. So it's very similar to the female pill, for example, wherein estrogen and progesterone are provided in the pill. And that means the woman doesn't make estrogen and progestin. And so because she's not making those hormones in her ovary, she doesn't ovulate. In this case, we give men testosterone plus a progestin. And because we're providing those hormones, uh, the testicle no longer makes testosterone and the sperm, in this case, fail to develop. And these hormonal contraceptives are designed so that other bodily functions aren't affected. The testes require a high level of testosterone to make new sperm, but the rest of the body is given enough testosterone that normal systems are impacted as little as possible. Hormonal contraception is pretty well understood. You might remember us talking with John Amory and Christina Wang in previous episodes about the foundational science and the previous studies that go all the way back to the 1970s. It's been tested in lots of different ways, implants, injections, and different derivatives of just normal testosterone. And because lots of that legwork has already been done, Stephanie and the team have been able to take multiple hormonal methods all the way to their studies on men. So the goal here is ultimately to provide a number of different delivery options. So a pill has always been something that men have been particularly interested in when they're surveyed. So we're working on that. Um, We're working on a topical gel that men would apply every day. And then just like many women like would prefer a longer acting method, we're trying to develop an injection um, that would be delivered at intervals of every three to six months. We have projects in all those areas um, with the sort of foundation of this reversible hormonal methodology. And there's lots of work that has to be done before you're allowed to test in people. The evidence has to be really good and vetted scientifically that your drug is going to work, not to mention be safe. Think about it. If we're going to put human lives on the line when testing new drugs, we've got to have no doubts that the people who volunteer will be okay. And for what it's worth, we'll go into this in future episodes. But male contraceptives have got to be especially safe. A drug that can cure you of a disease that would otherwise kill you can have some problems as long as it saves your life. With contraceptives, you're treating a population of young, healthy men for a really long time. That means for anything to get over the safety barrier, it has to be really, really safe. And the FDA in the United States and other regulatory agencies have not been particularly forthcoming about what the regulatory standards for development are going to be. And it's not just safety. You have to prove that it works, too. Do you know of a way to have a literal 0% chance of pregnancy and still have sex? Every method, even permanent ones like vasectomy, have failure rates. The clinical trials that Stephanie is doing also need to show that the methods they're testing have high enough efficacy rates to get approved. One problem, though. It's not totally clear what that rate has to be. Does it have to beat the condoms rate of 85% or the vasectomy at better than 99%? Nobody's really sure yet, and that makes it a little harder to find out where the bar is going to be. Before you get to the clinic, when you're working in the lab, you make lots of adjustments. You change this variable, you mess with that dosage, etc. And if something in your results changes, you have to sit there and try to explain it in a way that makes sense. You try one thing, 
see what happens, and adjust your plan accordingly. Since you can't really ask the mice what they think about it, the interpretation is all about understanding the data. Inside the clinical world, you're dealing with people, real humans with emotions, schedules, and extenuating circumstances. Sure, you've still got tons of data to interpret and things to understand, but since your test subjects can tell you about their experiences, making a human connection is super important. But the most important thing that we do is have a lot of conversations with the research subjects. When are you taking it? Are you taking it with food? It's really important that we develop a relationship with the participants in these trials. And um, that's and that's where the experience of running them, I think, is really important to uh, understand the kinds of questions to ask to tr that might give us some clues into the variability between people. Even though it's science, people are people. Sometimes it's a big difference. Like... I hate horror movies, and other people love them. My body might react totally poorly to some drug someone else uses without a problem. Sometimes it's a bit more nuanced. Like, if you prefer the first Star Wars, whereas I might prefer Return of the Jedi. Our experience is slightly different between the two, but overall we have the same reaction. Drugs may interact with our bodies in a way that's hard to predict, and because people are so variable, it makes clinical trials even harder than the early stuff, working in a lab. So I, you know, I think the, the biggest challenge of going into clinical trials is that, you know, as physicians and scientists, we want to do no harm. I mean, that's really one of the tenets of medicine. And so you want to understand what the product does, but you also have a person who you're working with and you need to ensure their safety. Like, for example, if somebody's lab tests start to become abnormal, you know, you have to set up the study so that there are parameters for abnormality um, and but you also want to know, is that from the drug or is it from something else they've done? And so there are so many more variables in a person than there is in an animal, but also there's so much more at stake in terms of their safety. Um, and at the same time, of course, we have the goal of understanding what the drugs do. In early clinical trials, safety is the number one goal. Prove that we can continue testing this drug. And those early studies, they're weather balloons of sorts. Canaries in the coal mine to make sure that all of that due diligence about safety in preclinical was correct. Uh, so the first phase of clinical trials is always it's phase one, appropriate <laughs> named apropos. Um, and really, the goal of phase one and early phase two is to demonstrate safety. So whenever we give a new drug to a person, you know we don't. We've done all the preclinical testing in animals and in the in the lab. But you need to show that there's not some unpredicted effect. And so phase one is give a tiny dose to a few people, wait, you know, measure, watch, observe. And if everything is fine, then you can move to a, a, a bigger dose and so forth. So it's dose escalation of single doses of a product. So it has nothing to do with whether the product does what you hope it will do, which in this case is serve as a contraceptive. Phase two, so once you show safety... Phase two is when you start giving patients multiple doses, stretching it out for timelines like a few months or a year or so. And still there, the main point is safety. Only when you get into later stage trials do you have effectiveness studies. Each time you move up, the studies get bigger and focus more and more on how well the drug does what you claim it does. And each individual stage takes a long time. You've got to do all the logistics of these big clinical trial sites get people to sign up, and then study them in these big, long phases that can take years each. 
not to mention the whole combined process. One of the products Stephanie mentioned, a daily contraceptive gel that men rub on their shoulders, is in phase two studies right now, being tested in couples at sites around the globe. It's still got a long trek ahead, but it's the furthest along the path. And it's being well received. And I think the other thing that's really exciting is is just sort of the buzz about contraception. We haven't seen that um, in a long time. There was a lot of interest in the 80s, um, but really there is so much interest right now. And I think we see that in our participants and in the enthusiasm that people respond to our recruitment strategies for participation in these trials. And I think that says a lot about the social dynamics and that are changing, at least um, uh, in Western countries and I think globally. And so I think there is what, what the field really needs is, is demand from the users and or the potential users. And I really think that we're seeing, um, seeing a lot more of that than we did maybe 20 years ago. Everybody in male contraception is trying to catch up to Stephanie and her colleagues to get their products proven to be safe enough to try in a person. And even though some of those projects have been going on for decades, nobody's there yet. Getting to clinical trials is a giant milestone, but it's a short celebration because there's still just a massive amount of work to do before the drug is actually approved. These products, the ones being tested in men right now, will take another decade of study before even one is ready to hit the shelves. Yeah, yeah, I'm one of a million people saying male contraception is 10 years away. Still. Spare me. Drug development takes a crazy long amount of time and a crazy big pile of money. It's one of the most highly regulated industries out there, and for good reason. We need to be sure that the drugs on our shelves are safe and that they do exactly what they say they're going to do. And it's extra hard because all drugs are different. The definition of safe and effective can be very different between a breakthrough chemotherapy and, say, a new painkiller. Male contraceptives are going to have to be extra safe and extra effective because, well, would you want one that might work or was safe-ish? There are lots of little factors around drug development that make it a little harder. And most drugs have some kind of precedent to rely on. Someone who blazed the trail and set the standard of care that you're trying to beat. If your drug is better or safer or treats something else at the same time, then it's a pretty clear bar to hurdle. You know what your forefathers had to do to get approved, and so you just have to do a little better. Male contraception doesn't have that luxury. They don't have it for clinical trials, and they don't have it for other areas either. For instance, nobody knows how to market a male contraceptive. You can't know what a man likes about his long-acting, reversible contraceptive if he doesn't have one to begin with. On top of that, nobody knows how men are going to get these products. Do they go to an OBGYN? their family practitioner, Planned Parenthood. All of these are possibilities, but it's something else that needs to be figured out. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. The unknown and the opaque. Above and beyond clinical trials, male contraception is facing tons of challenges because it's a whole new world out there. The first person to do it is going to be the first person to do it. And until then, everyone is out in the jungles with machetes just trying to blaze a trail. We'll cover the challenges that people are facing as they develop these drugs, the ones that have surprised people and the ones that everyone sees coming in the future. The drug development pathway is awful bumpy and you'll get to see how new ideas 
are turning challenges into opportunities. Next time, Unintended. Special thanks for this episode goes out to the MCI Board of Directors and Catherine Carpenter. Additional thanks to Polina Lishko, Lily Gabalev, Catherine Hamill, and Christina Wang. Music from Blue Dot Sessions. Intended is written and produced by myself and Kevin Shane out of the Offices of Male Contraceptive Initiative in Durham, North Carolina. Heather Vidot is our Executive Director. I'm Logan Nichols. Intended is a project of Male Contraceptive Initiative, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to advancing the development of reversible, non-hormonal contraceptive options for men. For more information or to donate to our cause, visit malecontraceptive.org. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and other social networks by searching Male Contraceptive. You can find more information about MCI's grantees like Aaron on our website, malecontraceptive.org. You can also find more information about EPIN and the Center for Male Contraception Research and Development on their websites. We'll drop a link on our social media. If you like our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes and share us with your friends. If you'd like to be a part of Intended and want to share your thoughts on male contraception or you just want to reach out, record a 30-second voice memo on your phone and email it to intended at malecontraceptive.org. You might make it onto the show. Thanks for listening. Before we go, here's something completely different. Just to document for historical purposes, Atticus the dog has just, I'm guessing, either peed or poop on Kevin's floor for the first time. <laughs>